welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin, your host, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to Christ in Context. My name is Kevin. I'm so glad that you are listening. Um... If you like the stuff that you've been hearing, uh, I want to hear from you. Uh, if you've got questions about maybe something I say that doesn't make sense, uh, send me an email uh, at pod at gmail.com or reach out on social media. Um, before we get into our topic, I actually wanted to share some stuff that I've uh, been asked about just from a neighbor of mine, I live in an apartment building and I've got a neighbor friend who is in a master's program and he's taking Greek right now. And I have taken more Greek. So he was just asking me some questions and I wanted to share, uh, some stuff that's been going on. I think it's neat to be thinking about. Um, so his class has been going through Galatians. Um, and so they're in chapter three right now. And he asked me a question about um, how we translate this word "huper." So in Greek, there's a word "huper." It's a preposition. It means all kinds of things. It can mean for the sake of. Um, sometimes it can mean like for the benefit of. Um, in place of, I think might be um, one way that you could translate it. Um, there's a bunch of different ways. It all depends on the context of it and, you know, how the author is using it. So um, in his class, he had mentioned that there was some stuff that like they were the professor had brought up like, well, what does this mean? Um, exact substitution or does it mean like a, a benefactory type of replacement? Um, so the Greek of it says Christos Hamas. Exegorasen, uh, Christ, us, um, is, sorry, I got the Greek and English pulled up. So Christ redeemed us, exegorasen, redeemed us, ectes kataras, from the curse, to namu, of the law, genomenos, huper, having become... And then huper. Uh, this is in the NASB translated as having become for us or becoming for us. Um, so it, we just translated it as for. Um, I've got a, a little textbook by um, Richard Young, which I would recommend if you're interested. Maybe you've taken like an intro to Greek and you're trying to find like a good um, intermediate textbook. This is intermediate New Testament Greek. Um a linguistic and exegetical approach. It's a really solid short book. Well, not super short, but it's, it's shorter than say, um, Daniel Wallace's beyond the basics, which is a monster. But anyways, he says who pair, uh, could be substitution, which, um, he gives an example of Philemon, 13, where Paul wanted to keep Onesimus with him so he could minister to him in place of Philemon. Um, and then he also lists the text 
that I'm looking at, Galatians 3.13, uh, as the idea that, how does he say it? In the same way Christ's vicarious suffering can be conveyed by Hooper in in place of us. But before he gets to that, he also says benefaction, the idea of for the benefit of. So maybe someone who doesn't hold to the substitutionary view of the atonement might say that um, they might translate Hooper as simply Christ became for our benefit. He became the curse for our benefit. Um, I still have an issue with that. Um, I think there's other texts where the same word "huper" is used in a like manner, speaking of Christ becoming um, in our place. The whether it's here, I think that it would be fair to translate it as um, in the place of or for the sake of. He became um, a curse for the sake of us. Um, but if that's not convincing, then let me pull up first Corinthians or second Corinthians, sorry. 521 uses the same word. It says, uh, Tan me, the one may gnata, the one who did not know Hamartion, sin, who pair hemon. It's the exact same phrase uh, that we just saw in Galatians 3.13, who pair hemon for the sake of us, or uh, the reason why it doesn't make sense to say for the benefit of is because of the next phrase, hamartion epoiesen, sin he was made. So if Galatians 3.13 isn't going to be convincing for you that Christ was an actual substitute for us because of the usage of huper, then I would tell you to look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Huper hemon is the exact same words that are used. Um, and I think along the lines of Paul's argument, um, he it doesn't seem that he's making the case of Christ being just uh, becoming a curse for our benefit, um, but rather in our place. Um, Because in verse 12, he says, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Paul draws on this idea of Jesus becoming a curse. Um, And then 14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So he became a curse uh, for us. So just a a brief little thing that I thought was pretty neat. I maybe didn't do that. It's full justice. I had, didn't take a ton of time to prepare for that, but it was just something that's been on my mind. Um, and so if there's something that you are curious about, uh, something that I say that you want me to kind of explain or expound on, um, let me know, reach out to me. I, I want to interact with you guys. Um, I want, I want to spend the first little bit of time, um, you know, maybe sharing something that's been on my mind or something 
that might be beneficial for you answering a question or something um, before we get into our subject. So with that being said, we are continuing in our Zechariah study. We are in part five, which is chapter three. So this is the, oh boy, the fourth uh, vision that Zechariah has. It's, I'm going to say it's a consecutive stream of visions um, where that's clear because he says over and over again, then I lifted my eyes or then he showed me um, as, as if it's this consistent string of visions that he saw all in one night or all at one time. So I'm going to read uh, chapter three. It's only 10 verses. So um, I know sometimes it seems like it's overwhelming to get through a whole chapter at a time, but it's only 10 verses, which really isn't that much. Um, so Zechariah writes, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the plucked, (laughs) plucked Uh, Oh my gosh. It's been an interesting morning. Uh, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you uh, and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So Zechariah is interacting here. He says, then I, then I, Zechariah said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, this says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge in my courts. And I will grant you free access among those, among these who are standing here. Now, listen. Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol for behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. Uh, I think I might've just read for behold. I'm sorry. Let me go back to verse eight. Now, listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol for behold. I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch for behold, I will, uh, for behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his his vine and under his fig tree. I don't know why that was so tough for me to get through towards the end. Um, Just got tongue-tied and couldn't get those words out. But we did it. Um, So we're just going to go verse by verse like we normally do. Um, Just a reminder of the context. Zechariah, as I already mentioned, is in his fourth vision. I'm, I'm going to say that it's fourth in a row. Um, I'm willing to hear other arguments that maybe say it's 
just the fourth vision and now he's telling it as though they were in a row. But I don't see that that's a super strong argument. Um, as far as um, the context of where Zechariah is living, he's in Jerusalem. Uh, he's serving as a prophet. Him and Haggai are serving together. They are trying to encourage um, the people that are in, uh, that are rebuilding Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple. Um, Joshua was serving as the high priest during this time. Uh, I'm going to pull up a couple verses just to share some of the context um, from what they had, like what Haggai had said, and then also what Ezra says. So Haggai says that in Haggai one twelve, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. And then Ezra 6.14 says something about um, Zechariah and Haggai working together. It says, and the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying. So the elders of the Jews, um, these are the people who are kind of leading this whole construction process, were successful in the building of Jerusalem, the temple, through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edo. Uh, they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So there's a little foreshadowing about kind of what comes out of these prophecies. And so let's not forget that these prophecies did serve a real purpose during a real time. And that's something that's super, super important as we're going through these texts. Um, they meant something for the people that Zechariah was talking to. They're not, um, Zechariah, when he wrote these down, maybe didn't have in mind, um, Jesus himself. Um, but he, I'm going to say he likely had in mind, um, the, the hope of the coming Messiah. Um, the tr rightful faith, uh, the saving faith towards the coming Messiah. Um, obviously Christ had not been as clearly revealed yet. So I can't say that he had, um, the, the perfect, uh, understanding of who the exact person of who Christ is. Maybe he saw Christ in these visions. Um, but, the text doesn't say that, so I'm not going to go beyond that. So, uh, verse 1, let's go back. He showed me Joshua the high priest. So, uh, why is Joshua being shown? Like, why, why does this matter? Uh, for Zechariah, looking at this image, he's seeing the representative of... Um, of Israel, the representative, because the high priest would be the one who, um, once a year on the day of atonement would go and 
make sacrifice and make an offering for all of the people of Israel. He would represent all of Israel and he would uh, make atonement for them. He'd literally stand before God in the Holy of Holies um, on behalf of the the people of Israel. And this is interestingly related to um, what I had previously been mentioning about the New Testament teaching of Christ's substitutionary atonement. I I would say it's an entirely biblical teaching that if Christ is our high priest, he is therefore on behalf um, and and if he's the Lamb of God, he is going before us in our place rather than uh, maybe some other idea. Uh, I think the popular idea right now is probably like Christus Victor. You know, Christ has won the the victory for us. Um, anyways, a little off t- a little off topic. Um, so yeah, Joshua is an important figure right now, especially for Zechariah and the people who maybe hear this message from Zechariah that he is standing and representing the people of Israel. So we see Joshua as this representative. And then we see Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now in Hebrew, there's this really interesting wordplay uh, or alliteration where it says Vahasatan and then a, f- a few other words. And then it, ends with la sit la sitanu or la sitano um so it's built off of that same word satan and then the same sitano probably doesn't sound like it because of my pronunciation but there's definitely if you're looking at it you can see the alliteration um it's it's basically the satan was standing at his right hand to Satan <laughs> to do Satan things. The accuser uh, was standing there to do accuser things or to accuse, um, to accuse him. So the idea is some people have made the argument that this figure isn't actually Satan himself. Maybe it's some other spiritual figure who just serves the role of accusing us which is kind of just jumping around the question uh, or jumping around the idea because I think it's, it's still Satan. Uh, That's what Satan's job is to accuse us Um, in part. That's, that's what he does. Uh, He tries to prove um, that we are not worthy of salvation. And God has this beautiful, um, response because the, it's this picture of a courtroom where Joshua is standing there and he's getting accused. It doesn't say it, but the idea is that Joshua is, you know, being proven guilty. And then here's how the Lord responds to Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So, Essentially, the Lord is silencing Satan. He is saying, enough of what you have to say, uh, enough of your accusing, be silent. And what's neat about this word uh, that means rebuke is there's other places where it's uh, used to connote this idea of obviously rebuke, um, but it 
implies that the rebuke is effective and it actually the uh command that is given follows up with the person actually um obeying it so like rebuke like the lord rebuke you has this idea that satan is actually rebuked and actually silenced um it's just these small nuances that don't make they don't change the meaning of the words um but it's it brings this clearer picture almost as if um we are going from like a 480p um video to like a 1080 or like a 4k like it's the same video but it's a little bit clearer um makes more sense i guess so satan is actually silenced and then uh god says that joshua he refers to joshua as a brand plucked from the fire uh another way we could translate it is like a branch or a um a stick plucked from fire and the idea is uh israel has been taken out of the fire of god's wrath out of his judgment um it's a a people who have been spared who have been saved and then uh, we get a better picture of who Joshua, maybe not who Joshua is, but what his position is before God. Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and this could mean a bunch of stuff. could mean that Joshua is maybe just ceremonially unclean, which doesn't inherently mean sinful, but he is unclean. Uh, and the sinful part of this, uh, would be for, uh, the Jew to acknowledge their uncleanliness and still stand before God, I guess would be what is sinful about that. Um, but it could actually be representing physical, like legitimate sin. Um, it could be, I guess a strange way to take this would be, it's like actual dirt, um, from building and doing work um, in the building of the temple. I don't think that really stands up because later on uh, God says that he removes his sin. So it's implied that this filth is representative of sin. Standing before God reveals our sin. And we get this picture in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is before the throne of God and he just falls on his face and says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He, even though he's a prophet, he's one who is generally a a righteous and a holy man standing before God, his unrighteousness is revealed. And so, um, yeah, let's go on to the next verse where, um, says he spoke and that is God spoke uh, and said to those who were standing before him saying remove the filthy garments from him again he said to him see I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes so after God has silenced the accuser he there is the acknowledgement that Joshua and 
implicitly in that, uh, Joshua, along with all of Israel, because Joshua is the representative of that, uh, the rest of the remnant of Israel are sinful people. Indeed. Uh, there's no question about that. But what God does is he removes their sin by saying, remove the filthy garments from him. There's this exchange of a filthy garment being taken off and then clean garments being put on. And what I love about this is it's this beautiful picture of a doctrine that we reform people hold to um, of imputed righteousness. And I had already read Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's Christ becoming sin on our behalf, with the result that there's an exchange of Christ's of our sin for Christ's righteousness. Um, and then in Revelation. 3, 5, it says, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. It's really cool about this idea in Revelation and this picture in Zechariah is that, um, so later on in Revelation, John says, then I, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So he's in the throne room of God. Uh, there's a scroll that's got seals and no one on earth, under the earth, anywhere is worthy to open up this book because no one has overcome. Um, and one of the elders that are in the throne room says to Joshua, or not to Joshua, to John, sorry, <laughs> Uh, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So Christ is the one who overcomes. And in our being hidden in Christ, we are thus overcomers as well. We are only able to overcome because he has overcome for us. Uh, when we are in Christ, we in a sense, reap his benefit. It's this really, really neat picture. And so uh, what God has done on our behalf, we don't deserve, and yet he does it anyways. And that's the picture that we see with Joshua, where he doesn't deserve to get these new clothes. He doesn't even deserve to get his filthy clothes removed. Um, he should just be struck down for being unclean and unholy before the Lord, and yet he stands before him and God removes his clothes and makes him clean. And then he says that uh, he has taken, God has taken Joshua's iniquity away from him. And thus uh, it's this picture of he's taken away the iniquity of Israel. Uh, he will clothe them with festal robes. It's this idea of like this big celebration that, um, Israel not only stays at the point of just barely being justified, but also um, will be glorified. I um, mean, we get the promise as Christians that we are justified, sanctified, and then glorified. So 
we're getting all of these images that are fleshed out in the New Testament. And there's all these connections that are, I think, super plain. Um, if you take the time to just really slowly read and kind of think, okay, how has the New Testament fleshed out a similar idea? In verse 5, it says, Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So, or not Joshua. I keep wanting to say Joshua. It's probably just the easiest one to say. Uh, Zechariah starts to interact. Um, He's the prophet. He's able to uh, interact with the high priest, with the priesthood. Um, And so he sees... Uh, what's going on. And he says, let them put a clean turban on his head. And what's neat about this is he's not, uh, maybe some people who are really steeped in old Testament might hear this. And your first thought is, okay, maybe this is, um, Joshua calling for God to put a turban as in like, uh, a priestly turban on his head. Well, that's not the same word that's used. Um, let me look in my commentary to find what the word is that is used. Um, normally, the priestly headdress is called Mishnepet. And in Zechariah, we have Chanif. Uh, I believe. Um, And so they're derived from a similar root, but they are very different. Mishnepet has to do with the idea of, as I mentioned, a priest, whereas uh, Chanif is this celebratory uh, headdress. So... uh, they put a clean turban on his head, clothed him with garments, uh, while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So it's pretty straightforward up to this point. Um, Israel is, and when I say Israel, I'm talking about Joshua being the representative of Israel, is having their sin removed. They are then dressed in beautiful robes. Uh, nothing that they have done has deserved it, and yet God in his grace has made them clean and, uh, has saved them. So then verse, we're going to do verses six and seven. Uh, and the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. The angel of the Lord is encouraging him. He's, um, sternly it, it's this idea of the angel, like comforting, but also like sternly, um, reminding him that what he's about to say is conditional. So verse seven says, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts. And I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. So this phrase should not be new. This is all over the Old Testament. If you will walk in my ways, if you will perform my service. I'm reading through Kings right now, 
and all over the place from David to uh, Solomon, where the promise to David is, if your sons will walk in my ways and do my works, to Solomon, if your sons will walk in my ways and do my works, and then there's this blessing. Uh, and there's a constant uh, condemnation of the kings who did wicked, that they did not walk in the ways of their father David. They walked in the ways of uh, of their wicked father ahead of them. Uh, with the righteous kings, they walked in the way of the Lord. Things, things like that. This is, uh, and it's common in Deuteronomy where God is telling the Israelites, walk in my ways and it will go well with you. So this is definitely not something that's new to Joshua or Zechariah. And he says, uh, you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And remember, so this is where things get really neat because we get this picture that, okay, Joshua's a high priest. So of course he's going to govern God's house. And of course he's going to have charge of the courts. That's what the high priest does. But remember that uh, Joshua is representative of the whole um, the whole people of Israel. So in Exodus nineteen six, God says, "Well, let me go back here." Oh, boy. Pulled this up on uh, Bible Gateway, which I highly recommend. It's a great resource um, if you you know trying to compare different versions. Also, totally forgot about this resource, but um, Blue Letter Bible is a fantastic resource. Um, it's really easy to use. Um, they've got the Hebrew Old Testament. They've got Septuagint. They've got. Um, I know I got super excited when I saw that they have a Septuagint because right now my Greek is better than my Hebrew. So I got really excited about that. Anyways, so I get this 19. Uh, God says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that sounds familiar. If you will walk in my ways and will perform my service, it's a similar conditional clause. If you will do this, if you will do this, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples. And to Joshua, God is saying, then you will govern my house. You will have charge of my courts. I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. In other words, free access to the heavenly court. Um, and then in verse six, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I think what God is doing here is so profound. He's using Joshua as a representative of all of Israel and telling them as a collective whole that if you will walk in my ways and will perform my service, then you will truly be a kingdom of priests. And we know that that obviously does not happen. They fail over and over again. But if we acknowledge that Joshua as the high priest 
in a typological sense is the foreshadowing, the type uh, of Jesus, who Hebrews reveals as our high priest. Then let's let's read Hebrews seven twenty five through twenty eight. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is always making intercession on our behalf, which I love. This is an amazing, amazing concept of, I would, I would say of unconditional election and limited atonement that, uh, if Christ has died for a specific group of people, then he is making intercession for that specific group of people in order that we would, be preserved. It's this beautiful picture of how much Christ loves us and how dedicated he is to us. Um, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, which is the picture that we're given of Joshua after he's made clean by God. He's holy and innocent and undefiled after God has made him clean, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. But now we're describing Christ who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself, which is another place where we can make the argument of Christ's substitutionary atonement that he has at one time, offered up for us. Uh, he has died in the place of us. Um, he's made this atonement once and it was effective. Verse 28 for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So, we're getting this picture of, and then in first Peter, um, Peter takes this, um, Exodus passage, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Peter takes that passage and applies it to the church. We are made a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Why? Because Christ is our high priest. And if that's the case, then he has covered us. He's covered our sin. He's, Um, he is the one who represents his church and not just in the sense of Christ being married to the church, but in the sense of Christ being the head of the rest of the body, which is his church. Beautiful. Fascinating. Verse eight. Listen, now listen, Joshua, the high priest. So now the the shift goes from just Zechariah observing to God speaking directly to Joshua. Well, I guess this shift has already taken place um, where the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua um, and gives him this conditional statement. And it's conditional because it's part of the Old Covenant. The whole Old Covenant is conditional, whereas... Um, the the new covenant is 
unconditional in God's saving grace. Uh, So verse 8, it continues. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. Which is really interesting. What do do they symbolize? Um, I would presume that this might mean priests. So maybe Joshua standing there with his friends who are priests. Um, and Joshua is just the high priest and they symbolize, um, what's about what the angel of the Lord is about to say for behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. And this is another idea that's fleshed out in a couple other passages. Uh, even later on in the book of Zechariah chapter six, verse 12, Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and will build the temple of the Lord. So this idea is later fleshed out. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 6. But uh, this idea of a a branch, we we also hear of like a shoot coming from uh, the seed of Jesse. Um, It's this picture of the Messiah that... um, this priesthood is uh, going to come about through the Messiah. And then we get this really, I was super confused reading this. And you might be too as well. You get to verse 9. It says, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. For behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So, uh, there's apparently a stone that's in front of Joshua, or at least is now placed in front of Joshua, and this stone has seven eyes on it, and when we read that, we it's kind of unclear. Does the stone itself have seven eyes or are there seven eyes that are looking on it? Um, we're looking on towards it. Maybe would make, uh, this picture clear. But the idea is that I'm going to say with the latter that there are seven eyes looking towards it. Um, kind of gazing over it because, God says that he will engrave an inscription on it. And so the idea of seven, a lot of times is used throughout scripture to talk about completeness. Um, it's this idea of the complete host of heaven is looking upon this one stone and it will be engraved uh, with an inscription. The inscription is not described. What is this inscription? Well, the patristic fathers have taken this, um, the church fathers have taken this to mean that the inscription is, well, the stone is Christ and the inscription is the lashes that uh, Christ would receive, which I'm not going to entirely disagree with that, but at least in terms of the immediate context, who is Zechariah talking to? Maybe the stone represents the foundation of the temple, like the entire foundation, like this massive stone. 
maybe it's the cornerstone or the capstone um, of the temple. So, like, if it's the cornerstone, it would be laid first. If it's the capstone, it would be that last thing that's laid on there. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the inscription would mean if that was the case. Um, I think it has to do something with, like, if it's a capstone kind of marking off, like, this is a capstone um, and the temple is complete. Um, and if, if that's the case, then it's this promise to the people who are building the temple that it will indeed be finished. The building of the temple will indeed be accomplished. Um, and it's this hopeful promise. And from there we get this, uh, type of a temple. And I I love to talk about temple typology where Christ is the temple. Uh, we are in a sense, the temple, um, throughout the old Testament, God is constantly talking about templing with his people. It's, it's a really, really important theme throughout scripture. So I would say that for our new Testament understanding, this stone is Christ. And, uh, the inscription, I wouldn't go too deep into that because it's not clear. I don't want to go beyond what the text says. Uh, the inscription could be that, um, God is engraving the, you know, we might take this wordplay of Christ being the word and he has the law, the word written on him. Uh, he's carving out in a metaphorical way, like the personhood, like making the son of God, a real person. There's all kinds of ways that we could go about that. Um, maybe we'll agree with the church fathers and say that it was the lashes that Christ would soon receive. So, um, lastly, we've got verse 10, which says in that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. And so he's talking about in that day when the stone, uh, has come, the iniquity of the land will be removed. After all that is done, then, um, then everyone will be able to, every one of God's people, I should say more narrowly, will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. And what does that mean? That simply is just a way of expressing this huge abundance that God gives to his people. The fig tree and a vine and a fig tree is just symbolizing this agricultural abundance. Um, It's a hope for the remnant people that they're rebuilding their country, their city, and there's this hope that they will kind of get back on their feet. And later this idea is brought to its full. And I think, I don't know how many times in the past couple episodes I've taken it to this verse, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to keep going to Revelation 21, where John says that he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And that's the idea that we're getting, that uh, God will build his temple among his people. Uh, At least that's the idea I'm getting from him talking about this stone that is going to be, um, that God will set in front of Joshua. Um, And being able to sit under his vine and under his fig tree, it's this idea of peace and um, complete restoration. And so I want to end with this quote from the commentary that I've been using, which is from Mick Comiskey. He says, we perceive in these assurances an important element in this book. As surely as the temple builders will complete their task, so surely will God bring into time in history the kingdom of his servant, the branch. So while Christ has brought his kingdom, um, it is still not here in its fullness And so we have this hope that the kingdom will be brought to its fullness. um, And we will be able to dwell with God in his uh, tabernacle. He will completely tabernacle with us. So until next time, um, take that as a hope. Um, (laughs) I I always want to have like a, a neat like ending last phrase, but I never know what to say. So, um, I'm working on that. If you've got any ideas, send it my way. I'm I'm just going to keep advertising that you guys email me or something until it actually happens. <laughs> um, but seriously, until next time, love God, love others, uh, search him in his word. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen. And subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. If you have a question that you would like to hear answered on the show, reach out on social media or email us at ChristInContextPod at gmail.com. We are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters and Doctrinal Discipleship. For other edifying material, check out reformpodcasts.com and Doctrinal Discipleship either on Facebook or doctrinaldiscipleship.com.